Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of the Musings on Theosophy podcast. I'm your host, Marlon Braccia. This is Part 2 of the Sevenfold Constitution of Man. In it, we'll talk about manas. Those readings will be a continuation of readings from the ocean. The discussion of Bodhi and Atman will be from readings from the Key to Theosophy. As always, I ask you to be patient with the very complex and sometimes long sentence structure that was more common in the mid-1800s when this material was written. There are several terms that you may have not heard before. One is anthropomorphic, and it simply means attributing human qualities to a non-human entity. The word devachanic is also used, the adjective of devachan, meaning the abode of the deities. Materialism is also a word that's often used in theosophy. The generally understood definition of materialism today is perhaps the pursuit of worldly possessions that money can buy. And in fact, it's an example of materialism itself because it's an oversimplified definition. Here's how the American Heritage Dictionary defines materialism. Quote, The theory that physical matter is the only reality and that everything, including thought, feeling, mind, and will, can be explained in terms of matter and physical phenomenon. Unquote. That's a broader definition of the term that you may want to keep in mind. We also come across the term astral eidolon. Eidolon being form, and in this context, the shadowy form of the astral body. All right, so let's jump into the writings, starting with the chapter on Manas from the ocean. Enjoy. The Ocean, Chapter 7, Manas. In our analysis of man's nature, we have so far considered only the perishable elements which make up the lower man, and have arrived at the fourth principle or plane, that of desire, without having touched upon the question of mind. But even so far as we have gone, it must be evident that there is a wide difference between the ordinary ideas about mind and those found in theosophy. Ordinarily, the mind is thought to be immaterial, or to be merely the name for the action of the brain involving thought, a process wholly unknown other than inference, for that if there be no brain, there can be no mind. A good deal of attention has been paid to cataloging some mental functions and attributes, but the terms are altogether absent from the language to describe the actual metaphysical and spiritual facts about man. This confusion and a poverty of words for these uses are due to almost entirely, first, to dogmatic religion, which has asserted and enforced for many centuries dogmas and doctrines which reason could not accept and secondly to the natural war which grew up between science and religion as soon as the fetters placed by religion upon science were removed and the latter was permitted to deal with facts in nature. The reaction against religion naturally prevented science from asking any but a materialistic view of man and nature. 
So from neither of these two have we yet gained the words needed for describing the fifth, sixth, and seventh principles, those which make up the Trinity, the real man, the immortal pilgrim. The fifth principle is manas. In the classification adopted by Mr. Sinnott, and is usually translated, mind. Other names have been given to it, but it is the knower, the perceiver, and the thinker. The sixth is booty, or spiritual discernment, and the seventh is atma, or spirit, the ray from the absolute being. The English language will suffice to describe in part what manas is, but not booty or atma, and will leave many things related to manas undescribed. The course of evolution developed the lower principles and produced at last the form of the man with a brain of better and deeper capacity than that of any other animal. But this man in form was not man in mind and needed the fifth principle, the thinking, perceiving one, to differentiate him from the animal kingdom and to confer the power of becoming self-conscious. The monad was imprisoned in these forms and that monad is composed of atma and buddhi. For without the presence of monad, evolution could not go forward. Going back for a moment to the time when the races were devoid of mind, the question arises, who gave the mind? Where did it come from? And what is it? It is the link between spirit of God above and the personal below. It was given to the mindless monads by others who had gone all through this process ages upon ages before, in other worlds and systems of worlds. And it therefore came from the evolutionary periods which were carried out and completed long before the solar system had begun. This is a theory, strange and unacceptable today, but which must be stated if we are to tell the truth about theosophy. And this is the only handling on what others have said before. The manner in which this light of mind was given to the mindless men can be understood from the illustration of one candle lighting many. Given one lighted candle and numerous unlighted ones, it follows from one light the others may also be set aflame. So in the case of Manas, it is the candle of flame, the mindless men having four elementary principles of body, astral body, life, and desire, are the unlighted candles that cannot light themselves, the sons of wisdom, who are the elder brothers of every family of men on any globe, have the light, derived by them from others who reach back, yet farther back, in endless procession with no beginning or end. They set fire to the combined lower principles of the monad, thus lighting up manas in the new men and preparing another great race for final initiation. This lighting up of the fire of Manas is symbolized in the great religions and Freemasonry. In the East, one priest appears holding a candle lighted at the altar, and thousands of others light their candles from this one. The Parsis have their sacred fire, which is lighted from some other sacred flame. Manas, or the thinker, is the reincarnating being the immortal who carries the results and values of all the different lives lived on earth or elsewhere. Its nature becomes dual as soon as it is attached to a body, 
for the human brain is a superior organism and Manas uses it to reason from premises to conclusions. This also differentiates man from animal, for the animal acts from automatic and so-called instinctual impulses, where the man can use reason. This is a lower aspect of the thinker of Manas, and not, as some have supposed, the highest and best gift belonging to man. The other, and in theosophy higher, aspect is the intuitional, which knows and does not depend on reason. The lower and purely intellectual is nearest to the principle of desire, and it is thus distinguished from its other side, which has an affinity for the spiritual principles above. If the thinker then becomes wholly intellectual, the entire nature begins to tend downward, for the intellect alone is cold, heartless, selfish, because it is not lighted up by the other two principles of buddhi and atma. In manas, the thoughts of all lives are stored. That is to say, in any one life, the sum total of thoughts underlying all the acts of the lifetime will be of one character in general, but may be placed in one or more classes. That is, the businessman of today is a single type. His entire life thoughts represent one single thread of thought. The artist is another. The man who has engaged in business but also thought much upon fame and power, which he never attained, is still another. The great masses of self-sacrificing, courageous, and strong poor people who have put little time to think constitute another distinct class. In all these, the total quantity of life thoughts makes up the stream or thread of life's meditation, quote, that upon which the heart was set, is stored in manas, to be brought out again at any time in whatever life the brain and bodily environments are similar to those used in engendering that class of thoughts. It is manas which sees the objects presented to it by the bodily organs and actual organs within. When the open eye receives a picture on the retina, the whole scene is turned into vibrations in the optic nerves which disappear into the brain, where Manas is enabled to perceive them as idea, and so with every other organ or sense. If the connection between Manas and the brain be broken, intelligence will not be manifested unless Manas has by training found out how to project the astral body from the physical and thereby keep up communication with the felomen. That the organs and senses do not cognize objects, hypnotism, mesmerism, and spiritualism have now proved. For we see in mesmeric and hypnotic experiments the objects seen or felt, and from which all the effects of solid objects may be sensed, is often only an idea existing in the operator's brain. In the same way, Manas using the astral body has only to impress an idea upon the other person to make the latter see the idea and translate it into a visible body from which the usual effects of density and weight seem to follow. And in hypnotism, there are many experiments, all of which go to show that so-called matter is not per se solid or dense, that sight does not always depend on the eye and rays of light proceeding from an object, that the intangible for one normal brain and organs may be perfectly tangible for another, and that physical effects in the body may be produced from an idea solely. 
the well-known experiments of producing a blister on a simple piece of paper, or preventing a real blistering plaster from making a blister by force of the idea conveyed to a subject, either that there was to be or not to be a blister, conclusively proved the power of affecting an impulse on matter by use of that which is called manas. But all these phenomena are an exhibition of the powers of lower manas acting in the astral body as the fourth principle, desire, using the physical body as a field for the exhibition of forces. It is this lower manas which retains all impressions of a lifetime and sometimes strangely exhibits them in trances or dreams, delirium, induced states, here or there in normal conditions, and very often at the time of physical death. But it is so occupied with the brain, with memory, and with sensation that it usually presents but few recollections out of the massive events that years have brought before it. It interferes with the action of higher manas because just as the present point of evolution, desire, and all corresponding powers, faculties, and senses are the most highly developed, thus obscuring, as it were, the white light of the spiritual side of manas. It is tinted in each object presented to it, whether it be thought object or a material one. That is to say, lower manas operating through the brain is at once altered into the shape and other characteristics of any object, mental or otherwise. This causes us to have four peculiarities. First, to naturally fly off from any point, object, or subject. Second, to fly to some pleasant idea. Third, to fly to an unpleasant idea. Fourth, to remain passive and considering not. The first is due to memory and the natural motion of manas. The second and third are due to memory alone. The fourth signifies sleep when not abnormal and when abnormal is going toward insanity. These mental characteristics are belonging to lower manas, are those which higher manas, aided by buddhi and atma, has to fight to conquer. Higher manas, if able to act, becomes what we sometimes call genius. If completely mastered, then one may become God. But memory usually presents pictures to lower manas, and the result is the higher is obscured. Sometimes, however, along the pathway of life, we do see here or there men who are geniuses or great seers and prophets. In these, higher powers of manas are active in the person illuminated. Such were the great sages of the past, men like Buddha, Jesus, Confucius, Zoroaster, and others. Poets, too, such as Tennyson, Longfellow, and others, are men in whom higher manas now and then sheds a bright ray on the man below. To be soon obscured, however, by the effect of dogmatic religious education, which has given memory to certain pictures that always prevent manas from gaining full activity. In this higher trinity, we have the God above each one. This is Atma. It may be called the higher self. Next is the spiritual part of the soul called Buddhi, when thoroughly united with Manas. This may be called the divine ego. The inner ego, who reincarnates, taking on body after body, stirring up the impressions of life after life, gaining experience and adding it to the divine ego, suffering and enjoying through an immense period of years, 
is the fifth principle, manas, not united to buddhi. This is the permanent individuality, which gives every man the feeling of being himself and not some other. That which through all the changes of the days and nights, from youth to the end of life, makes us feel one identity through all the period. It bridges the gap made by sleep. In like manner, it bridges the gap made by sleep of death. It is this, not our brain, that lifts us above the animal. The depth and variety of brain convolutions in man are caused by the presence of manas and are not the cause of mind. And when we either wholly or now and then become consciously united with booty, the spiritual soul, we behold God as it were. This is what the ancients all desired to see, but what the moderns do not believe in, and the latter preferring to rather throw away their own right to be great in nature and to worship an imaginary God made up solely of their own fancies and not very different from weak human nature. This permanent individuality in the present race has therefore been through every sort of experience, for theosophy insists on its permanence and in the necessity for its continuing to take part in evolution. It has a duty to perform, consisting in raising up to the higher state of all matter concerned in the chain of globes to which the earth belongs. We have all lived and taken part in civilization after civilization, race after race on earth, and will so continue throughout all rounds and races until the seventh is complete. At the same time, it should be remembered that the matter of this globe and that connected with it has also been through every kind of form, with the possibility of some exceptions in very low planes of mineral formation. But in general, all the matter visible or held in space still unprecipitated has been molded at one time or another into forms of all varieties, many of these being such as we now have no idea of. The processes of evolution, therefore, in some departments, now go forward with great rapidity than in other ages because both manas and the matter have acquired facility of action. Especially it is this in so regard to man, who is the farthest ahead in all things or beings in this evolution. He is now incarnated and projected into life more quickly than in earlier periods when it consumed many years to obtain a, quote, coat of skin. This coming into life over and over again cannot be avoided by the ordinary man because lower manas is still bound by desire, which is the preponderating principle at the present period. Being so influenced by desire, manas is continually diluted while in the body, and being thus diluted is unable to prevent the action upon it of the forces set up in the lifetime. These forces are generated by manas, that is, by the thinking of the lifetime. Each thought makes a physical as well as mental link with the desire in which it is rooted. All life is filled with such thoughts, and when the period of rest after death is ended, manas is bound by innumerable electrical magnetic threads to the earth by reason of the thoughts of the last life and therefore by desire. For it was desire that caused so many thoughts and ignorance of the true nature of things. An understanding of this doctrine of man, being really a thinker, 
and made of thought will make clear all the rest in relation to incarnation and reincarnation. The body of the inner man is made of thought, and this being so must follow that if the thoughts have more affinity for earth life than for life elsewhere, a return to life here is inevitable. At the present day, Manas is not fully active in the race, as desire is still upmost. In the next cycle of the human period, Manas will be fully active and developed in the entire race. Hence, the people of Earth have not yet come to the point of making a conscious choice as to the path they will take. But when in the cycle referred to, Manas is active, all will then be compelled to consciously make the choice to right or left the one leading to complete conscious union with Atma, and the other to the annihilation of those beings who prefer that path. Here is more from the ocean on the sevenfold human constitution. Manas, Bodhi, and Atma. How has man come to be the complex being that he is, and why? are the questions neither science nor religion makes conclusive answer to. This immortal thinker, having vast powers and possibilities, all his because of his intimate connection with every secret part of nature from which he has been built up, stands atop an immense and silent evolution. He asks why nature exists, what the drama of life has for its aim, how may that aim be attained. But science and religion both fail to give a reasonable reply. Science does not pretend to be able to give the solution, saying the examination of things as they are is enough of a task. Religion offers an explanation both illogical and unmeaning and unacceptable, but to the bigot, as it requires us to consider the whole of nature as a mystery and to seek for the meaning and purpose of life with all its sorrow in the pleasure of a God who cannot be found out. The educated and inquiring mind knows that dogmatic religion can only give an answer invented by man while it pretends to be from God. What, then, is the universe for? And for what final purpose is man, the immortal thinker here in evolution? Is it all for the experience and emancipation of the soul? for the purpose of raising the entire mass of manifested matter up to the stature, nature, and dignity of conscious godhood. The great aim is to teach self-consciousness, not through a race or a tribe or some favored nation, but by and through the perfecting, after transformation, of the whole mass of matter as well as what we now call soul. Nothing is or is to be left out. The aim for the present man is his initiation into complete knowledge, and for the other kingdoms below him that they may be raised up gradually from stage to stage to be in time initiated also. This evolution carried to its highest power. It is a magnificent prospect. It makes of man a god and gives to every part of nature the possibility of being one day the same. There is strength and nobility in it, for by this no man is dwarfed and belittled, and no one is so originally sinful that he cannot rise above all sin. Treated from the materialistic position of science, evolution takes in but half of life. 
while the religious conception of it is a mixture of nonsense and fear. Present religions keep the element of fear and at the same time imagine that an almighty being can think of no other earth but this and has to govern this one very imperfectly. But the old theosophical view makes the universe a vast, complete, and perfect whole. Now the moment we postulate a double evolution, physical and spiritual, we have at the same time to admit that it can only be carried on by reincarnation. But who or what is it that reincarnates? It has been shown that the passional part of us coalesces with the astral after death and makes a seeming being that has a short life to live while it is disintegrating. When the separation is complete between the body that has died and the astral body and the passions and desires, life having begun to busy itself with other forms, the higher triad, Manas, Buddhi, and Atma, who are the real man, immediately go into another state. And when that state, which is called Devachan, or heaven, is over, they are attracted back to earth for reincarnation. They are the immortal part of us. They, in fact, and no other are we. This should be firmly grasped in the mind, for upon its clear understanding depends the comprehension of the entire doctrine. What stands in the way of the modern Western man seeing this clearly is the long training we have had in materialistic science and materializing religion, both of which have made the mere physical body too prominent. The one has taught of matter alone, and the other has preached the resurrection of the body, a doctrine against common sense, fact, logic, and testimony. But there is no doubt that the theory of the bodily resurrection has arisen from the corruption of the older true teaching. The resurrection is founded on what Job said about seeing his Redeemer in his flesh, and on St. Paul's remark that the body was raised incorruptible. But Job was an Egyptian who spoke of seeing his teacher or initiator, who was the Redeemer, and Jesus and Paul referred to the spiritual body only. Although reincarnation is the full law of nature, the complete trinity of Atma Bodhi Manas does not yet fully incarnate in this race. They use and occupy the body by means of the entrance of Manas, the lowest of the three, and the other two shine upon it from above, constituting the God in heaven. This was symbolized in the old Jewish teaching by the heavenly man who stands with his head in heaven and his feet in hell. That is, the head Atma and Bodhi are yet in heaven, and the feet, Manas, walk in hell, which is the body and physical life. For that reason, man is not fully conscious, and reincarnations are needed to at last complete the incarnation of the whole trinity in the body. When that has been accomplished, the race will have become as gods, and the godlike trinity, being in full possession of the entire mass of matter, will be perfected and raised up for the next step. This is the real meaning of, quote, the word made flesh, unquote. It was so grand a thing in the case of any single person, such as Jesus or Buddha, as to be looked upon as divine incarnation. And out of this, too, 
comes the idea of the crucifixion, for Manas is thus crucified for the purpose of raising the thief to paradise. The, quote, higher self is Atma, and of course it is, quote, non-materializable. Even more, it can never be objective under any circumstances, even to the highest spiritual perception. For Atma, or the, quote, higher self, is really Brahma, the absolute and indistinguishable from it. In hours of samadhi, the higher spiritual consciousness of the initiate is entirely absorbed in the one essence, which is Atma, and therefore, being one in the whole, there can be nothing objective for it. Now, some of our theosophists have gotten into the habit of using the word self and ego as synonyms of associating the term self with only man's higher individual or even personal self or ego. Whereas this term ought never be applied except to the one universal self. Hence the confusion. Speaking of manas, the causal body, we may call it, when connecting it with buddhic radiance, the higher ego, never the higher self. For even buddhi, the spiritual soul, is not the self, but the vehicle only of self. All the other selves, such as the individual self, the personal self, ought never be spoken of or written of without their qualifying and characteristic adjectives. Atma, or spirit, is one with the absolute as its radiation. We include Atma amongst the human principles in order not to create additional confusion. Atma, the higher self, is neither your spirit nor mine, but like sunlight, shines on all. It is the universally diffused, quote, divine principle and is inseparable from its one and absolute metaspirit, as a sunbeam is inseparable from the sunlight. In reality, it is no human, but universal absolute principle of which Bodhi, the soul spirit, is the carrier. Atma, the inseparable ray of the universal and one self, it is the God above, more than within us. Happy the man who succeeds in saturating his inner ego with it. Spirit, in the sense of the absolute and therefore indivisible all, is called Atma. As this can never be located nor limited in philosophy, being simply that which is in eternity and which cannot be absent from even the tiniest geometrical or thematical point of the universe of matter or substance, it ought not to be called, in truth, a human principle at all. Rather, and at best, it is in metaphysics, that point in space which the human monad and its vehicle man occupy for the period of every life. Now that point is as imaginary as man himself, and in reality is an illusion, a maya. But then for ourselves, as for other personal egos, we are a reality during that fit of illusion called life. And we have to take ourselves into account, in our own fancy at any rate, if no one else does. Occultism calls this seventh principle the synthesis of the sixth and gives it for vehicle the spiritual soul, buddhi. Buddhi is the spiritual soul, the vehicle of the pure universal spirit. Neither atma nor buddhi each separately nor the two collectively, are any more used to the body of man than sunlight and its beams are for a mass of granite buried in the earth, unless 
the divine duad is assimilated by and reflected in some consciousness. Neither Atma nor Buddhi are ever reached by karma because the former is the highest aspect of karma, its working agent of itself in one aspect, and the other is unconscious on this plane. Manas, or mind intelligence, meaning the higher human mind or human soul, whose light or radiation links the monad, Atma Buddhi, for the lifetime to the mortal man. It is a dual principle in its functions. The future state of the karmic density of man depend on whether Manas gravitates more toward Kamarupa, the seat of animal passions, or upwards toward Buddhi, the spiritual ego. In the latter case, the higher consciousness of the individual spiritual aspirations of mind, Manas, assimilating Buddhi, are absorbed by it and form the ego, which goes into Devachanic bliss. Manas, the fifth principle, so-called independently of Bodhi. The mind principle is only the spiritual ego when merged into one with Bodhi. No materialistic being supposed to have in him such an ego, however great his intellectual capacities. It is the permanent individuality or reincarnating ego. Manas is the derivation or product in a reflected form of ahamkara, the concept of I, or egoship. It is, therefore, when inseparably united to the first two, called the spiritual ego and taijazi, the radiant. This is the real individuality or the divine man. It is this ego, having originally incarnated in the senseless human form, animated by, but unconscious since it had no consciousness, of the presence in itself of the dual monad, made of the human-like form a real man. It is that ego, that causal body, which overshadows every personality karma forces it to incarnate into. And this ego, which is held responsible for all the sins committed through and in every new body or personality, the evanescent masks which hide the true individual through the long series of rebirths. That which reincarnates is the spiritual thinking ego, the permanent principle in man, or that which is the seat of manas. It is not atma, or even atma buddhi, regarded as the dual monad, which is the individual or divine man, but manas, for atman is the universal all, and becomes the higher self of man, only in conjunction with buddhi, its vehicle, which links it, to the individuality or divine man. For it is manas which is called the causal body, the united fifth and sixth principles, and which is consciousness that connects it with every personality it inhabits on earth. Therefore, soul being a generic term, there are in men three aspects of soul, the terrestrial or animal, the human soul, and the spiritual soul. These, strictly speaking, are one soul in its three aspects. Now, of the first aspect, nothing remains after death. Of the second, nos or manas, only its divine essence, if left unsoiled, survives. While the third, in addition to being immortal, becomes consciously divine by the assimilation of the higher manas. 
It is manas, therefore, which is the real incarnating and permanent spiritual ego, the individuality. And our various and numberless personalities, only its external masks. It is sufficient to understand what we mean by buddhi and duality of manas to gain a clear perception why the materialist may fail to have self-conscious survival after death. Since manas, in its lower aspect, is the seat of the terrestrial mind, it can, therefore, give only that perception to the universe which is based on the evidence of that mind. It cannot give spiritual vision. It is said in the Eastern school that between buddhi and manas, the ego, or ishwara and pragna, there is in reality no more difference between a forest and its trees, a lake and its waters, as the Mundaka Upanishads teaches. One or hundreds of trees, dead from loss of vitality or uprooted, are yet incapable of preventing the forest from being still a forest. Do not imagine that because man is called septenary, then quintuple, and a triad, he is a compound of seven, five, or three entities, or as well expressed by a theosophical writer, of skins to be peeled off like the skins of an onion. The principles, as already said, save the body, the life, and the astral adelon, all of which disperse at death, are simply aspects and states of consciousness. There is but one real man, enduring through the cycle of life and immortal in essence, if not in form, and in this manas, the mind-man or embodied consciousness. The objection made by materialists who deny the possibility of mind and consciousness acting without matter is worthless in our case. We do not deny the soundness of their argument, but we simply ask our opponents, quote, Are you acquainted with all the states of matter, you who knew hitherto but of three? And how do you know whether that which we refer to as absolute consciousness or deity, forever invisible and unknowable, be not that which, though it eludes forever our human finite conception, is still universal spirit matter or matter spirit in its absolute infinitude? It is then one of the lowest, and in its monfantaric manifestations, fraction aspects of the spirit matter, which is the conscious ego that creates its own paradise, a fool's paradise, it may be, still a state of bliss. Plato speaks of the interior man as constituted of two parts, one immutable and always the same, formed of the same substance as deity, and the other mortal and corruptible. These two parts are found in our upper triad and the lower quaternary. He explains that the soul, tsuke, quote, allies herself to the nos, divine spirit or substance. She does everything aright and felicitously, but the case is otherwise when she attaches herself to annoya, folly, or the irrational animal soul. Here, then, we have manas, or the soul in general, in its two aspects, when attaching itself to annoya, our kama rupa, or the animal soul. It runs toward entire annihilation, as far as the personal ego is concerned. When allying itself to the nos, atma buddhi, it merges into the immortal, imperishable ego, and then its spiritual consciousness of the personal that was becomes immortal. 
Besides Plato, there is Pythagoras, who also followed the same idea. He described the soul as a self-moving unit, monad, composed of three elements, the ous, spirit, the fren, mind, and the tumos, life, breath, or the nepesh of the Kabbalists, which three correspond to our Atmabudi, higher soul spirit, to manas, the ego, and to kamarupa, in conjunction with the lower reflection of manas. That which the ancient Greek philosophers termed soul, in general, we call spirit, or spiritual soul. Buddhi, as the vehicle of Atma, the Agaton, or Plato's supreme deity. The fact that Pythagoras and others state that Fren and Tumos are shared by us with the brutes proves that in this case the lower monastic reflection, instinct, and Kamarupa, animal living passions, are meant. And as Socrates and Plato accepted the clue and followed it, if to these five, namely, Agaton, deity or Atma, Suke, soul in the collective sense, Nos, spirit or mind, Fren, physical mind, and Tumos, Kamarupa or passions, we add the Adelon of the mysteries, the shadowy form or the human double, and the physical body. It will be easy to demonstrate that the ideas of both Pythagoras and Plato were identical with ours. The spirit, the father and secret of Jesus, or Atman, is no individual property of any man, but is the divine essence which has no body, no form, which is imponderable, invisible, and indivisible, that which does not exist yet is, as the Buddhists say of nirvana. It only overshadows the mortal, that which enters into him and pervades the whole body, being only its omnipresent rays or light, radiated through booty, its vehicle and direct emanation. This is the secret meaning of the assertions of almost all ancient philosophers when they say that the, quote, rational part of man's soul never entered wholly into man, but only overshadowed him more or less through the irrational spirit, soul, or booty. Now, booty is irrational only in the sense that, as a pure emanation of the universal mind, it can have no individual reason of its own on this plane of matter. But like the moon, who borrows her light from the sun and her life from the earth, so booty, receiving its light of wisdom from atma, gives its rational qualities from manas. Per se, as something homogeneous, it is devoid of attributes. While we believe with the Neoplatonists and the Eastern teachings that the spirit, Atma, never descends hypostatically into the living man, but only showers more or less its radiance on the inner man, the psychic and spiritual compound of the astral principles. The Kabbalists maintain that the human spirit, detaching itself from the ocean of light and universal spirit, enters the man's soul, where it remains throughout life imprisoned in the astral capsule. All Christian Kabbalists still maintain the same, as they are unable to break quite loose from the anthropomorphic and biblical doctrine. We only allow the presence of radiation of spirit or atma in the astral capsule insofar only as that spiritual radiancy is concerned. We say that man and soul have to conquer their immortality by ascending towards the unity of which, if successful, 
they will be finely linked and into which they are finally, so to speak, absorbed. The individualization of man after death depends on the spirit, not on his soul and body. Although the word personality, in the sense of which it is usually understood, is an absurdity if applied literally to our immortal essence, still the latter is, as our individual ego, a distinct entity, immortal and eternal per se. It is only in the case of black magicians or of criminals beyond redemption, criminals who have been such during a long series of lives, that the shining thread which links the spirit to the personal soul from the moment of birth of the child is violently snapped, and the disembodied entity becomes divorced from the personal soul, and the latter being annihilated without leaving the smallest impression of itself on the former. If that union between the lower or personal manas and the individual incarnating ego has not been affected during life, then the former is left to share the fate of the lower animals, to gradually dissolve into ether, and have his personality annihilated. But even then, the ego remains a distinct being. It, the spiritual ego, only loses one devachanic state after that special and in that case indeed useless life, as the idealized personality, and is reincarnated after enjoying for a short time its freedom as a planetary spirit almost immediately. In the Hindu sacred books, it is said that which undergoes periodical incarnation is the sutratma, which literally means the thread soul. It is a synonym of the reincarnating ego, manas conjoined with buddhi, which absorbs the monastic recollections of all of our preceding lives. It is so called because, like the pearls on the thread, so is the long series of human lives strung together on that one thread. In some Upanishad, these recurrent rebirths are likened to the life of a mortal which oscillates periodically between sleep and waking. There is a spiritual consciousness, the monastic mind illuminated by the light of booty, that which subjectively perceives abstractions, and the sentient consciousness, the lower monastic light, inseparable from our physical brain and senses. This latter consciousness is held in subjection by the brain and physical senses, and, being in its turn equally dependent on them, must of course fade out and finally die with the disappearance of the brain and physical senses. It is only the former kind of consciousness whose root lies in eternity which survives and lives forever and may therefore be regarded as immortal. Everything else belongs to passing illusions. The last readings were excerpts from the Key to Theosophy, actually small ones, but a number of them put together. All right. Those are the final readings of this episode. I only have one final thought I'd like to leave you with, and it has to do with language and the use of language. I've been reminded of when many years ago a young Italian man explained to me that in English we only had the word love, but in Italian there were at least ten words for love, and each of them was nuanced. The adoring love between children. The respectful love one might have for a father. Unrequited love. 
the love of heartbreak. Romantic love, passionate love. Each are in fact love, but because there are so many words to choose from, the idea of love itself becomes broader, has more range, and our understanding is more nuanced in the society where the words are used. Similarly, in spiritual studies, we often still rely on Sanskrit because the language itself has nuanced definitions that don't exist in other languages. So I hope that the exoticness of Sanskrit doesn't make you feel that these concepts are remote because they're not. They're right here with us every day, every moment, whether in those moments we're conscious of them or not. We can't truly know what's otherworldly. We can't understand what is beyond our capacity to do so. But we can try. We can stretch. And when we do, we get a glimpse. And at another point, another glimpse. And over time, it starts to knit itself together in our minds so that we do start to get some real understanding. Maybe this is a good time to use several languages to say goodbye. Adios. Arrivederci. Come on back soon for episode five. And if you feel like you don't want to wait that long, there are lots of Zoom classes that can be found at universaltheosophy.com by choosing community and then classes on the drop-down menu. My very special thanks to the Theosophy Company who so generously supports this podcast. Thank you and goodbye for now.